You're listening to a podcast from 702. What's coming up this hour, we're going to be having a masterclass on assisted suicide. We're talking about euthanasia and their very polarizing views when it comes to these situations. And I'd like to hear all of them. I'd like to hear your thoughts. But today we're speaking to director and founder of Dignity South Africa, Professor Sean David. Professor Sean David actually was not so long ago on the breakfast show speaking to Bongani Bingwa, but we're going to take a, a whole hour just to get into the subject and some of the thinking around assisted suicide. We'll take your calls on 11 SMS us 31702, tweet at M at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons and the WhatsApp line 072 702 1702. 702. Masterclass. We are joined now on the line by Professor Sean Davison, director and founder at Dignity South Africa, who actually happens to be in our Cape Town studios. Doctor, or Professor rather, uh, how are you doing and welcome to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and I'm very happy to be a free man today. Yes, so maybe you can just recap for us, you know, how you got to this point to say you are a free man in summary of your story and how you found yourself actually having to have this big legal case on your hands. Well, I was arrested and charged with the murder of three men. Uh, There were three men who were suffering unbearably Mm -hmm. and they didn't want to live. They had made the decision they didn't want to live. Mm -hmm. And they had no hope of recovery. Zero. This was their state for the rest of their life. They wanted to die. They couldn't do it on their own. They needed help. My role was only to be their hands. Mm. They would have done it on their own if they could. I was their hands. I didn't commit murder. I helped them to die. Mm. And I, I would like the public to appreciate that if I didn't do it, they would have found a way. It would have been extremely difficult for a quadriplegic to end his life. But he would have found a way. He was an intelligent mm. man, Dr. Berger, and determined to die. And the, the, the best they can hope for is to, to have an automatic wheelchair and push it over a cliff or in front of a train, or horrible deaths. Mm, but mm. by having a dignified assisted death, he had a good death. So let me, let me ask you this question. <clears throat> At the time of you assisting them, was this in the country? In, it was in Cape Town, yes. It was in all, Cape Town. All, all three men. Yeah. So now the question that some might have for you, even though you know they may understand the position that you were in and the decision that you made, is why did you choose to go ahead or did you understand when you went ahead that you possibly put yourself in the position of being arrested for murder? It, my decision to help them was not uh, an impetuous impulsive decision. I deliberated about it, not for a few minutes, but for days and weeks and months in Anrik Berger's mm-hmm. case. I, I thought about what would happen. I knew I was breaking the law, and I thought about not doing it. Mm. But I wanted to do the right thing, and the right thing was to help them end their suffering mm-hmm. at their request. So how did you, in essence, get caught, if I call it that? There was a complaint laid by a relative or or a close friend of Dr. Anruk Berger who knew what had happened. uh, She laid a complaint with the police. 
Okay, so a complaint was laid, and the relative who laid the complaint, were they of the understanding that the person did want to end their life and end their suffering? Yeah. It wasn't a relative, it was a close friend, and she knew his desire to die and accepted it. Mm. So I was very surprised when this complaint was made to the police by her. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now let's fast forward to, you know, you were found guilty, and what was, uh, what was the, if we could call it, the, the verdict in terms of the conviction and what time did you have to serve and how did you have to serve that time? Well, I wasn't found guilty. I was offered a plea bargain. Mm -hmm. Remember, each charge was premeditated murder. Mm. And the minimum, the mandatory sentence for premeditated murder is life imprisonment. Mm. Life. And I had three charges, three life charges. Mm. And the prospect of jail was almost 100%. All the top lawyers in the country were saying there's no way... I can avoid jail time. Mm. And it was a horrific prospect. Keeping in mind a South African jail is a dreadful place, overcrowded, high violence, very dangerous place. The plea bargain gave me the opportunity to be at home. Mm. In exchange, I had to plead guilty to premeditated murder, Mm. even though clearly I did not commit murder. But the alternative of going on trial and risking going to jail I could not I could not accept that, especially with a young family. Mm. My children wanted a father at home, not a hero sitting in jail. Mm. So let's now jump to the part about um euthanasia or assisted suicide. I was thinking a lot about it the past couple of days. And some of the thoughts that came to my mind were around suffering. I, I have personal experience with an aunt who had cancer and towards the end it was exceptionally difficult. And I would switch between, you know, praying for a miracle but also realizing the reality that we were facing. And I kind of reached a point that, you know, praying for a miracle or for God not to make this happen is also maybe a little bit selfish for somebody that you couldn't touch them without them being in agony. And, 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 you know, as, as a doctor, you will, you are fully aware of what that looks like. So the thought that I was having was around the concept of suffering because every time we have conversations around euthanasia, the suffering or the pain part usually speaks to physical ailments and physical challenges. Do you think there's room for a conversation where suffering in the context of euthanasia that we're speaking of? can be open to things that aren't seen. I definitely agree with that. We see the physical suffering, for example, a quadriplegic, not terminally ill, but clearly having a a very difficult, uncomfortable life. And we can't gauge their suffering. Dr. Berger told me, and I understand it, but I could see a physical injury. Mm. Now, if we go beyond that, we can't always see suffering, and I'm thinking of maybe mental suffering, Mm. extreme depression, but the suffering is to the same extent. We can't see it, but it is there. And only the individual can say how much they're suffering. And Mm. sometimes the doctors will say, hey, no, there's nothing wrong with you. I can't see it. But 
really it's been a little bit unsympathetic so and the the reason that i'm mentioning this and i know it's going to be extremely controversial and let me emphasize you know myself personally i'm a massive advocate for mental health and 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 um for anybody who is having um certain thoughts suicidal thoughts or suffering for depression to get help we partner with the south african depression and anxiety group but the reason i wanted to bring it up is because it really got me thinking about individuals who have done everything i'm talking gone from doctor to mental health facility to psychiatrist been on medication been in talk therapy been in all types of therapy that see themselves at a point where they now say guys i can't anymore like i actually can't and i don't have the courage or the means to end this life that i am living is there room in a conversation like what we're having to consider suffering is not limited to just being in pain there is uh, I didn't quite catch the end. Did this person want to end their life after so, all yes. that treatment? So, yeah. so, yes, as in if you do have, for example, and this is one of the many examples um, of a person who feels that they want to end their life because they're suffering psychologically, emotionally, and they have done everything over years to get the help. But let me even present another idea that, that like yours, is not a terminal illness situation. If we have an individual that let's say is behind bars for rape for murder and they say i cannot live with what i've done or they say i would rather go i'd rather be dead than have to sit in prison which will save the taxpayers money but they are saying yes you're not sentencing me to death but i would like to take the route out is there room in the conversation for Mm. that part in the euthanasia discussion Uh, i believe there is that person is making a request to die. It is against human nature to want to die. If they're saying it because their suffering in jail is so great, they've got a life sentence, they are making the decision. We have to consider the individual. We aren't going to decide how great their suffering is. Only they know. And a law change would have safeguards the person would have to be mentally competent and they would be assessed for that. And their request needs to be repeated over a certain period of time, whatever, six months, for instance. Yeah, there is room for that conversation, definitely. Okay, so now let's take a step back and talk about how do we clearly define what euthanasia is because we're talking about assisted suicide so it's not you deciding for another person um i'm assuming that it includes them expressly saying to you um that i no longer want to live anymore yeah um keep in mind any person can commit suicide anytime they want to and they do and often they're quite violent deaths particularly for men hanging or shooting, they can do that any time. We're talking about an assisted death, going through a process of applying for it, being assessed by a psychologist, Mm. repeated over a period of time. Quite different. Now, a person... So, Professor, can I just just pause you for a second because we do need to take a break, but please hold that thought exactly where you left it just in terms of what is it that qualifies it for for it to be assisted suicide. We'll continue with the doctor and this masterclass after this. 702 Masterclass. 
23 minutes after 2 o'clock, we're having a masterclass on assisted suicide and we're speaking to Professor Sean Davison, director and founder at Dignity uh, South Africa. Uh, professor, recently a free man uh, under house arrest for eight years uh, where he had to basically plead guilty to premeditated murder. But he's here to speak to us because, um, you know, you still stand by this this thought of people having the right to die. So back to where we were, which was what are the circumstances that qualify for a person or for, for it to be euthanasia or assisted suicide? And you already started using the example of um, a person who physically is unable to take their own life. Mm. Uh, you, you talked about a person ending their life, maybe depressed. And I wanted to highlight that if that person applied for an assisted death, they would come in contact with a psychologist who will give them counselling and may encourage them to want to live. If they didn't go that route, they could have committed suicide and be gone. Mm. By going for the assisted death option through the law, that might be their first contact with help, help they need. And in a way, you can see a law change as saving that person's life. Mm. And looking at the bigger picture, let's look at Dr. Anruk Berger, the quadriplegic I helped to die in Cape Town. Mm. He, he might be alive today if the law allowed the option of an assisted death. If he knew he could have an assisted death at any time he wanted because of his condition and his unbearable suffering, he would hang on and hang on. He was a born optimist, a happy guy, and he tried to make the most out of being a quadriplegic. However, that law wasn't in place, mm. and he was very worried he'd be stuck in that body for the next 40 or 50 years. He was a young, young enough man. Mm. But his doctor friends, his close friends would not help him to die, and me as a friend did agree to do it. After first agreeing to accompany him to Switzerland to have a death, I did agree to do it. And he was so scared that I might die in a road accident, and he'd be trapped in his body for... God knows how many years. Mm. He used to phone me every time I got home after visiting him to make sure I got home and didn't have an accident on the way home, mm. over, overlooking the fact that I could have an accident driving to work every morning. But he was very scared I might die and his exit out of the world would have been gone. Mm, mm, mm. And I think the way that you are framing it makes sense to me in the sense that if it is legal, then people know the choice is always there for them. Yeah. Uh, can I refer to the Oregon paradox? Yes. The Oregon was the first state in the United States to change the law. There, 40% of the people granted an assisted death don't follow through and take it. They, they die a natural death. Mm. And the question is, why did they bother applying? It's quite a complex process. Yes. The, reason, the implied reason is they want the security of knowing the option is available if mm. they need it. There, any day, they've been granted the death, they can have it if they want it, they relax and carry on living their life and dying the natural death from whatever illness they have. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we've touched on, um, I mean, you've explained situations where a person's physically unable to do it themselves. What are your thoughts and do you think there is a difference if it is a terminally ill patient who not only cannot do it themselves, but can also maybe not currently express and follow through with the process to say, I would like to be assisted. 
well, if they can't follow through and ask to be assisted, th th then they're not asking to die and they wouldn't qualify, no. So, so what I mean is, let's say you've got a person who has received a cancer diagnosis and then mm -hmm. things turn for the worse, which can go very, very quickly. And they've expressed to a loved one that, listen, um, I would rather not suffer. But come the time for the process to happen, they're unable to actually okay. keep expressing. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of those situations, because I'm sure many people um, may have expressed, you know, where for them the dignity, once the dignity is out the window, I also want to be out the window. But by the time yeah. they get there, yeah. they might not be able to apply. Okay. That would be referred to as an advanced directive requesting assistance to die when you get to a certain mental condition, mm -hmm. maybe when you can't recognize your own family members. Me too. I would not want to be living when I've lost my memories. Mm. My memories are my life. And when that is gone, I, w I would not want to be living. Mm. And that is my choice. Nobody else has to take it, but I'd like to have that option mm. of an assisted death should I lose my mind. For me, my mind is my life. I want to be able to play chess and bridge. And For me, to lose that pleasure, I would prefer not to be living. Mm. But it's my choice. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, so now let's come to the part of, you know, all of the work that you have been doing in this space and what you've been challenging legally. What are, are the key things that other countries are doing at the moment that you think they're doing them right that maybe South Africa could look to? A number of countries changed the law while I was on house arrest, including New Zealand and Australia, Spain and Austria, all in the last three years. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, Canada is quite a role model uh, in the legislation. And the early countries were Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and of course, Switzerland. And then the United States, 12 states have changed the law. We're going to have a look at, well, obviously the government will look at the different countries and, and when legislation does go before parliament, try and find a suitable one. We at Dignity SA would like to see it defined as unbearable suffering. Not only terminal illness, but a person such as Dr. Anrik Berger, who is suffering unbearably for physical reasons. And some countries allow that, such as Switzerland, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and Canada, a few, and, and New Zealand. I mean, the, each country is a little bit different. And the states in the United States tend to only be focused on terminal illness, a short prognosis, maybe six, six months or a year. Okay, and I think um, looking at those countries has actually had me thinking. Would you say that a big part of the reason that South Africa is not where you ideally would like it to be in regards to this conversation. And this is the question that I want to hear from you when we come back from news is, do you think our stance on religion as a country as a whole has made us have the view that we do on assisted suicide? So we will continue with and pick up on that question with Professor Sean Davison on this masterclass on assisted suicide. Masterclass. In our masterclass for today, we're speaking about assisted suicide, euthanasia, and we're with Professor Sean Davison, Director and Founder at Dignity South Africa. Now, before we continue, um, Professor, 
I would like to invite uh, everybody listening for your questions. O double one double eight three oh seven oh two and the WhatsApp line O seven two seven oh two one seven oh two. Any question that you may have for our guest on this discussion. But the question I was asking you before we came to um this point is do you think South Africa has been hesitant because of the general religious views? I don't believe this law changed to be a religious issue. I don't believe there's anything in the Bible about euthanasia. This is a matter between our own private conscience and our own gods. The main thing is that the intention is about kindness Mm. when ending a life. In South Africa, it's a bit more uh, complex, the religions. The majority of the country follow African ancestral religions. And I know there is a very important part of dying to become an ancestor. And you need to have a good death to become an ancestor. And an assisted death would not be considered a good death. And this is where the role of Archbishop Desmond Tutu was very important. He spoke openly about following African ancestral religions. Mm -hmm. And he described his own wish to have an assisted death if necessary. And he defined it in the context of an African ancestral religion. And by him doing that, it has made the majority of the country listen to him. When Desmond Tutu spoke, the world listened, but our country listened too. And I think he has contributed hugely to opening up the discussion in our country. Mm. And it's about public awareness. We need to talk about it. There's so many issues we haven't talked about. And when we did talk about them, it changed the law. I'm thinking of abortion, homosexuality, drug abuse, all these issues we now talk about freely around the dinner table and at school. Mm. We should be doing the same, talking about death and dying, because every one of us is going to die. All right, uh, we've got Jenny from Bromhoff on the line. Jenny, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, good. You've got a story to share. I do. I just wanted to say to Dr. Davidson... Sorry, Jenny, can you just speak into your phone? We are struggling to hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes, much better. Uh, You can start again. I'm sorry, I had the speaker on. Um, I was present at my brother's sister dying in in August last year in Canada. Mm. They have legalized it over there. And I must say... um, he wasn't suffering to the point that he was dying. He had advanced Parkinson's disease. Mm. So he was very, very inflicted with um, movement. He was beginning to choke on his food. And as I heard early on in the program, he was very depressed. Mm. And he was assessed over a good few months by psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, geologists, and they agreed that he should have this procedure. Mm. And it was done absolutely beautifully. And all I can say is I think it is our choice as individuals to decide when we have had enough um, and not be treated with all the drugs and artificial feeding and all the indignities that go with dying. Mm. He had a beautiful death. Mm, mm. And can I can I ask Jenny and, and thank you for sharing that with us? Were you always supportive of what your brother wanted? I was indeed. I was. Mm. I was very supportive. 
so were his family. Um, they were also counseled. You know, we in South Africa, so we couldn't, we weren't counseled. I had private counseling, mm. um, and I have been in counseling for a few months after August. Mm. Um, because I miss him, and death is so final, and, you know, there are the, there's the grieving period. But I would say I fully supported his decision, yes. So just maybe help us understand um, how long did the whole thing take? You say it was beautiful. Um, did they just put him to sleep and eventually he stopped breathing? Yes, what happened was he, they made him comfortable. He chose his special chair, reclining chair mm-hmm. in the lounge. We were all there. What they call is specialized nurses. Two specialized nurses came and they once again asked him if he was making the right decision and he had to sign a disclaimer again. Mm-hmm. And um, Did he choose he, the method of um, either medication? Did he have a say in, in how they do it? Yes. Okay. He did have a say in medication or injection. Mm. Um, and he wasn't sure he would swallow the tablet, so he went for the injections. Mm. And they administered one to stop the heart and one to stop the breathing. Mm. Hmm. And he passed very, very peacefully. Mm. Mm. You know, another point I want to make, I feel so salient here about, is we can do this for our animals. Why can't we do it for our loved ones? I'm so glad you mentioned that, Jenny. Somebody mentioned that to me yesterday that I was going to bring up, and thank you for your call, that why is it that animals get the right to dignity, but human beings don't? And we see it all the time, you know, horses on the side of the track, if they get injured, get put down. Um, uh, Professor, what are your thoughts on the, <sighs> on what Jenny has shared? And obviously the point that she's made about animals um, get to that. Why don't human beings? I know it's very cliched to say we give our our pets a peaceful death, why not humans? But it should be cliched. It should be said all the time. Mm. To me, and like many animal lovers, our pets are part of our family. I love my children. I love my pets. And they're part of our family. And we want them to have a dignified death, our pets. So should we let our parents and our grandparents have a dignified death? when they go. It's exactly mm. the same thing. Let's quickly take a voice note. Good afternoon, Rene Bokhile. Um, this is Lillian from Pretoria. Um, I'd just like to ask Professor um, a question, and uh, I'm sure he's well aware, and anyone that has been, um, had the misfortune of having to see one of their loved ones die, especially with hospice care, um, I'm sure that we've all witnessed the use of Uh, morphine um, towards the end of life and essentially um, an overdose of morphine is given and the person dies of a morphine overdose and it's the kindest thing that anybody can ever do in those final stages and yes granted the person hasn't asked to die but at that that point they usually are incapable of asking and I'm sure if they had a voice they would definitely ask for it Um, so I think that euthanasia has been happening in our country for many many years I think that it's unfortunate that uh, the professor um, had to be arrested um, for an act of love. Um, And yes, I do think that it's something that needs to change. Legislation needs to change because people are dying in a very, very undignified, undignified way. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody, anyone who has seen a loved one 
you know, you, you think that you'll, you'll be prepared for it, but when you see the amount of suffering, it's just devastating. And you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. So I do think that this needs to change. I think more conversations need to be had. And I really, really um, commend the professor for being brave and for opening the door. Um, I really think and I hope that things will change for the better. Thank you so much for that voice note. Professor, what are your thoughts? Well, your caller highlighted a very important point. She had seen a lot of suffering. And if you haven't seen it, you don't know about it. And what we don't see, we don't talk about. But terrible things are happening to very good people every day. But until you see it, you don't know about it. We're, we're busy living our life, enjoying our life as we should. But when we come across it, we're horrified. And then we're aware of the need for a law change. But we need to be talking about it, all of us, even if we haven't seen it, to be prepared for when we do come across that situation. We're ready for it when our parents are elderly and dying or grandparents. We need to be having this discussion. The more we talk about it, the more we're ready for it. There is an interesting uh, WhatsApp that's come through from Nelson, which says, Hi, Reb Gile. I was made to understand that we Africans used to put very old people in front of the cattle crawl exit for cattle to um, basically trample them to death. Such people would become... Uh, umpugudu, I'm not sure what that is. Umpugudu would sometime be seen during rainy seasons eating prickly pears. That is a message uh, from Nelson. Maybe somebody can help us understand. I don't know if you have heard of that ever, um, a Professor. Ooh, no, good grief. No, I haven't. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds quite scary if you ask me, but maybe at the time that was the only method that was available. Uh, yeah, I, I can't comment on that. It's, yeah. it's a tricky one, yes. All right, and then um, there are some questions that are also coming through, but what we'll do is we'll go to them in a moment. 072-7021-702 is the WhatsApp line. We see some of your messages. 702 Masterclass 10 minutes to 3 o'clock as we are drawing to a close on this Masterclass on Assisted Suicide. We're speaking to Professor Sean Davison, Director and Founder at Dignity South Africa. Professor, there's a question on Twitter from Isaac Mangena who says, can you ask the doctor on insurance payouts after assisted suicide? The last I checked, people who commit suicide don't get covered or payouts. In, in terms of a law change, where an assisted suicide is allowed, that law incorporates the insurance aspect to it. I know that for all the countries where the law has changed. For an actual suicide, I'm not sure. Um, they happen all the time. I'm not a legal expert. Mm, mm. All right, and um, another message says... Um, please kindly ask the doctor about the dangers or risk of euthanasia in the case of inheritance and beneficiaries. This is Temi, but I think um, this is something that was alluded to already, that m- much of the resistance might come from the fact that an individual could have motivation to take somebody's life if they are a beneficiary of their estate. That would be built into the law too, to, to check there's been no coercion on the family member to end their life sane state of mind, all all these will be checked by a panel of experts in psychology and and, uh, law aspects as well. We've got a WhatsApp voice note. That's the doctor. Sorry, let's try that again. 
Hi, Kelebohile. Please ask the doctor, what does it entail in the process of uh, euthanasia? I mean, now when the patient is taken to a room, what exactly happens in there? Mm. Thank you. See this one in Pretoria. Professor, what is the process of euthanasia? Um, the previous caller obviously shared how it happened for her brother. Can you share with us? Uh, there are two options for how you can die. You, you can choose either one uh, in most countries where the law has changed. Either you take a drink of nebutol, it's called, and you go into a deep, peaceful sleep and then pass away. Or you can have the lethal injection of the same medication. The reason for having the choice is that in quite a few medical conditions and terminally ill people have difficulty swallowing. And you may need to swallow about 100 mils of liquid. And if you can't do that, you can't have an assisted death. That's why the need for the option of the injection. I should point out in the Netherlands, where the statistics are quite reliable, of all the people given the choice between the two, the drink or the injection, 90% take the injection. Mm. I think for the peace of mind of having a doctor involved, um, removing the risk of perhaps vomiting up the, uh, the liquid. So the, the injection needs to be an option built into the law change. All right, another voice note. Please forgive my ignorance, and I've only joined um, this conversation quite late. But really, what is the difference between euthanasia or do not resuscitate? Surely it's the same thing. Um, maybe I'm being completely ignorant. But if I have a DNR, if I'm really ill, or something has happened, and or asked to be put out of my misery, essentially what it is, what is the difference? This is Kate from Benoni. Thank you for that question. I think it's a good one. I actually heard a story. Um, I can't recall where I saw it, but there was a story of somebody who was being put to death and they basically, the the whole process of the, of the death penalty for him malfunctioned. They resuscitated this person only to kill them again. Isn't it very funny how we think as human beings? But what are your thoughts, Professor, on what the question is? What is the difference between, between a DNR and euthanasia? Well, I don't think even if you have DNR tattooed on your chest, the doctor's obliged to honour your request. But certainly in most cases, 90% of cases where there's a resuscitation in that context, the patient doesn't survive. They've done a detailed study of that in America. Whereas if we watch our television, movies and soapies, most often a person who's been resuscitated does survive and live a normal life. But you'll find doctors themselves would prefer not to be resuscitated. Yeah, all right, another voice note. Hello, Rere Bochile. This is Selma from Rurepoort. My father suffered from emphysema and it got so bad that he absolutely dreaded the coughing spasms. Um, he said he felt like he was suffocating. And then he got so bad and he always said he wishes there was euthanasia. But then he got so bad that uh, he used his .22 gun of all things and... Um, put it to his temple and pulled the trigger. He um, was obviously unconscious immediately from the way the body was found, but his heart was still beating. And uh, this pushed uh, the blood from the shattered uh, um, base of the skull, as far as the autopsy would have shown, into his mouth cavity. As his heart was still beating, this all pulsated out over his face. And it was obvious that he actually really drowned in his own blood, mm. albeit while he was unconscious. It was a terrible sight. And uh, I don't think any of us who saw that has ever uh, recovered from it.
I mm. am on antidepressants, etc., etc. So I just wanted you to know that uh, yes, euthanasia would be a much better idea. Oh. Thank you for a lovely program. Bye. Condolences, and so sorry that you had to witness that. And I think you mentioned that, Professor. Many people, yeah, yeah. you know, I know people who have found their loved ones um, that have killed themselves in some terribly brutal ways. People jump off buildings. It is yeah. very, very scary. Yeah. You might recall uh, Mario Ambassini, the IFP politician, very popular politician, had dreadful cancer, all the medical treatments in the world available to him, they weren't working. He had the option of dying naturally, grogged out by morphine. Instead, he took his gun and shot himself in the head in his bathroom. A horrible way to die. It worked. It could have not worked. But people shouldn't have to do that. Mm. If you're dying, you're terminally ill, Please be allowed the option of choosing your time of death with dignity. Um, can you share with us, Professor, very quickly, somebody's asking what is the difference between euthanasia and switching the machine off? And I'm assuming with switching off the machine, usually the circumstances are that the doctors are saying there's pretty much nothing more they can do or there's zero brain activity. It's those kind of circumstances. Yeah. In our country, you are allowed to turn off the life support machine. That, uh, that is quite different from the law change we're seeking. And you can have it stated in an advanced directive, or if you're already on the machine, the family can decide on your behalf if it's a life support. Final thoughts, and maybe you can share with us about your book. Well, my book highlights the story of people in the situation where they're desperate to die. The stories we don't get to hear. Every minibus accident in this country, well, not everyone, but daily, the number of quadriplegics in our country has been added to. We don't see them. How often do you see a quadriplegic? We don't because they're usually living in a family member's room, never coming out. But they're there. And I'm not saying they all want to die, but some of them might prefer not to be alive. In my book, highlights the issues of people in that condition and my role representing many people who are asked to help loved ones or friends to die. Mm. And your book, of course, is called The Price of Mercy, A Fight for the Right to Die with Dignity. Where is it available? At leading bookshops around the country exclusive books and many others. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story, Professor Sean Davison, director and founder at Dignity South Africa.